Join me, Bob Morris, as we discuss desert horticulture. Today we'll be talking about Bosque pear trees and whether they'll produce any fruit in the desert. We'll also be talking about watering, irrigating, Blenheim apricot trees in the desert. How often should you do it? If you've got a vegetable garden and an ornamental garden, is it safe to have a water softener? And if you have lemon bottle brush shrubs and the leaves are starting to yellow, what should you do? Join me now as we discuss this and other topics on desert horticulture. Learn more about desert horticulture by signing up for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, Extreme Horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on Eventbrite if you're in the Las Vegas area. That's Bob Morris on Eventbrite. The first question I had sent to me was about uh, Bosque pears. <clears throat> said, I purchased a Bosque uh, pear tree seven years ago, not realizing it required a second pollinizer pear tree. For several years, I did not get a few pears, even though I did get a few pears, even though the tree had lots of flowers. I think my neighbor's pear tree was the pollinizer, <clears throat> but it seems to be failing. I have no room to plant a pollinizer pear tree. Not sure what to do. Well, for those of you that not, have not had a Bosque pear, it really is a nice pear. <clears throat> it is a, a crisp pear. It is a, a sweet pear. It's a dessert pear like like Bartlett, but it doesn't get as soft as Bartlett. It's crunchier. It has a very sweet flavor. It's juicy. The outside of it <clears throat> is a has that typical pear shape, but the top of it where the stem is located is more elongated. It's round on the bottom. You'll see them in the stores sometimes for sale, usually in the fall, starting around September-ish sometime and then going through the winter time. They're a very nice pear. I had the same problem when I was growing Bosque pear, and uh, that was I just didn't get a lot of fruit as much as I did Bartlett. This is in the Mojave Desert, as I did Bartlett pears. Bartlett's seemed to really produce well. The Bosque uh, was a little bit more touchy, sensitive. Maybe it's a humidity problem. I don't know <clears throat> what it is, but it didn't seem to produce as well. However, it always did produce a few pears. And that's because I had Bartlett's close by, and they, they were the pollinizers for it. And in order to grow a Bosque, you've got to have a Bartlett near, nearby somewhere providing pollen for within a within a seeing distance. It could be in the neighbor's yard. doesn't have to be right next to it. But uh, Bosque is, you know, if you want to decide whether to put a Bosque in, go to the grocery store, buy some Bosque, and when you bring them home, Select pears that has, still have the stem attached, and when you bring them home, put them on the kitchen counter because they'll not be ripe yet. They they're sent and shipped uh, still somewhat green, so they have to ripen uh, ripen on the at room temperature. Don't put them in the refrigerator at <clears throat> at room temperature, and, and for a couple of days before they'll start to ripen up. So give them a chance to do that. And uh, then feel the stem end, that long elongated conical end of it. And uh, when you first get it home, it should be really hard. And as they start to ripen, they'll start to soften a little bit. They don't get soft, but they start to soften a little bit. Also, you should be able to smell the aroma of them as they're ripening. 
If you want to speed up the ripening, go ahead and put them in a paper bag with a banana or an apple or something that gives off ethylene gas, and that'll speed up the ripening of them as well. But anyway, they're a clim more of a climacteric uh, one that they're they're a fruit that has a, a little bit of after ripening after they're picked, unlike most apples. Apples, but anyway, on that bosque tree, what I would probably do is um, I'd get a Bartlett, and even if I don't have room in the yard, I would probably plant that Bartlett uh, about 18 inches away from that bosque on the south side of the tree. And then I would uh, prune back the bosque on that south side to give that Bartlett pear a chance to grow in that area. And uh, I would uh, prune back the branches so they don't interfere with the bosque on the uh, north side of the Bartlett as well. Basically, you've got two half trees that are growing together and occupying one canopy space. You'll keep them separated like that. See if that... Um, see if those flowers on the Bartlett are going to open at the same time as the Bosque flowers do. And if they do, all you need is usually some uh, some pollinators in the yard. So if you'll plant some rosemary or something that blooms around that time that attracts bees in that area, that'll also help uh, bring them into the yard a little bit ahead of time so that they're there working the area at the time that those trees begin to begin to flower. The other thing that you could possibly do is uh, get some water in the yard, a bird bath or a shallow pan, something to put some water, clean water in, put some rocks in it so that the bees can have some place to land on them. They can walk down towards the water, get the water, and take it back to the hive. Because as air temperatures start to warm up a little bit, those bees are going to look for a source of water to take back to the hive so they can keep it cool. That's what they're going to be doing. That's part of their job. So that's what I would do. I'd get a Bartlett pear. And if you don't like the bosque, if it's not producing well, get rid of the bosque and go ahead and grow out that uh, Bartlett pear tree. And at least you can have some Bartlett pears instead of the bosque if, uh, if you want to have some pears. This second question has more to do with irrigating fruit trees. And they want uh, some information about irrigating them in the winter time, but the information I'm I'm thinking about when I'm going to answer this is really irrigating any time. You can apply it to the winter time because the winter time can be a little bit difficult to estimate. We're in January right now, so it's difficult to know when and how much to irrigate. But this person asked how often to do deciduous fruit trees. In this case, a Blenheim apricot need to be watered during the dormant season? Well, that's a real difficult question to answer because uh, it really, well, they, the right answer is it depends. and But a lot of it depends on the kind of soil and that's there. And we're really talking now about fruit trees that have, have dropped their leaves for the winter. We're not talking about evergreen fruit trees that are going to take a lot more water out of the ground than those that have drop their leaves. So you're talking about apricot, but it really applies to just about any any fruit tree that drops, any temperate fruit tree that drops its leaves. And what I would uh, tell you to do, there's an old-fashioned way that the farmers used to use uh, in an orchard area or even in an agricultural field. They take a shovel and they wouldn't dig down too deep, maybe six, eight inches deep, 
and they would then take the soil at that depth and hold it in their hand and squeeze it hard and then bounce it lightly in their hand. And if the soil ball fell apart, it was time to irrigate. If the soil ball held together, then you could wait a little bit longer. <clears throat> the I, For people that don't know the farming technique and have not farmed before, it's a lot easier to talk about soil moisture sensors. You can get an inexpensive houseplant soil moisture sensor for under $10 from Lowe's or Home Depot or the, your local nursery, wherever it might be, and they'll work just fine. They just don't they don't last that long because they're made out of plastic and they fall apart pretty easily. But all you'll need to do if it's a home situation is just get a few readings once in a while to get an idea uh, when to irrigate and what the moisture content is. So there's two things that you need. One is you need that soil moisture sensor. And two, you need a piece of rebar that I'll explain in just a minute. But uh, with the soil moisture sensor, uh, you can get those things. What I'll usually do is I'll stick it in the soil that's loose enough to push it in that probe end. There's a little, on the tip, there's a little um, bimetallic strip on it. There's That's a sensor uh, that senses how much moisture is left in the soil. So you want to gently push that into the soil. Uh, you know, it doesn't need to be deep. Maybe four to six inches deep to get a general idea. And if you look at that meter closely, there's a gauge or a meter on it with a needle. And uh, the scale that you're looking at is the scale of zero to ten. If it's on zero, it means there's no water at all. If it's on ten, it means that it's super wet. In fact, what you can do is take that moisture sensor and stick it in a glass of tap water. And when you do, that meter, that needle, will go up to 10. If there's an adjustment screw on your sensor, you can adjust it so that it sits on 10 when that tip is in the water. Then you know that that tip, when, it, when that meter shows 10, it's going to be sopping wet. Uh, and it's in the open air, it should read zero. So anyway, you'll find two or three locations around that tree. What I'll usually do is take the uh, tip of that sensor Push it into the soil easily so you don't break it, about four to six inches deep. And as you're pushing it in the soil, look at the meter. And your meter should start to rise, should start to go from uh, a low number to a higher number as you go deeper. And what you want to do is take a look at the average of about three readings where you're irrigating and take that average. And if it's six or, or less, hopefully it's not too much below six, it's time to irrigate. If it's eight or something, you've got a couple of days, a few days to wait before you're going to irrigate. So check it, and then you'll fall into a rhythm. You'll know approximately how many days you're going to have to wait before the next irrigation, because you'll know, check yourself, you know, take it out, check yourself, make sure you're accurate, and then do it seasonally as well <clears throat> as you progresses through the season. Do it as well and check that soil in the same way, not in the same locations, but push it in the soil four to six inches deep and check to see what that soil moisture is reading. And don't let it drop below six-ish area if it's an average. So you might get a reading of eight, you might get a reading of five, you might get a... Don't panic if it's five or four. Just look at the other readings as well and take that average because the roots are taking an average as well. They're not... 
their <clears throat> roots are are pulling water out of the soil and from different directions depending upon where the so where the water is located so the, the the roots are spread out in that area if the water is present so that answers one question that that one question you're asking is when to water how often to water that's done with that sensor i usually use a sensor that's much more durable than that a real temp or a lincoln that you can order on online because those things come in different length stems you can push them in the soil and they they're much more sturdy and they'll last longer i use them for consulting if i go on an orchard or if i go into a home residential yard i want to know if the, the soil is wet or not i'll take that out and uh, and I'll, I'll make a measurement at that case. The other question that you want to answer is how, how many minutes to run it or how much water to apply. And the best way to do that is to take that piece of rebar that I mentioned earlier. It's a three foot long, three eighths inch diameter rebar. You can get it at Home Depot, Lowe's. They're about a dollar. If you buy them, they're pre-cut. Go over to the rebar section in that lumber section, construction section. Go ahead and pick up one that's long enough. You'll want it about three feet long. And uh, by that, take it home. And you'll push it into the soil around the tree. And where the soil is wet, the re piece of rebar will just slide into that soil very, very easily. If it doesn't hit a rock, slides into that soil. And it stops where there's no more water. So where the water's dry, you'll have a hard time pushing it any further. But where the soil is wet, it will slide in easily. And you can push it into two or three locations and get an idea. Pull it out. Look at how deeply it, you could push it in. And you can get an idea about how deeply that water went. You want to add enough water to that tree to get that water down to a depth of about 18 to 24 inches deep when you're watering. If you're doing that around fruit trees, it's plenty deep enough. So add enough water, enough minutes, and that minutes uh, to get it to 20, 18, 24 inches deep. Those minutes don't change with the season. The frequency, or how often you water, will change. But it will not change how many minutes. So once you set the minutes on the controller, or minutes on a timer, they, they don't change they'll always stay the same. So anyway, if you're measuring that, I'm guessing, I'll guess and say, you're probably in the neighborhood, you're going to be watering about every, in the wintertime, maybe every seven to ten days. If you've got a surface mulch, like wood chips on the surface, you may get a couple of extra days in the winter, and you may get one extra day in the summertime, uh, because it's going to conserve water. So that's my best estimate on it, but you, wrote, you don't really know until you go out and actually take those measurements. This next one, you're going you're gonna to know uh, the answer to this, I'm sure, uh, before, I even, before I even give my side of it. I, I hopefully I'll add something that you don't know. But the question is, we have a vegetable garden <clears throat> and an ornamental garden. We didn't think about it, but we just installed a water softener. This softened water also comes out of the garden hoses. That means that the hose bibs are coming from the house. Is this water bad for our plants? Well, short answer, yes it is. 
the other answer I have is how can you fix it? <clears throat> There's a couple ways that you can you can fix this problem. Uh, the easiest way, a little bit more in, expensive maybe in the long run, is to not use the water softening salts that you buy that are least expensive. They're that salt that you buy is uh, basically made from sodium and chloride or chlorine. And both of those, both sodium and chlorine. <clears throat> chlorine is necessary for plants, but there's so much of it that it can be damaging. And the sodium is also damaging to plants and it's also damaging to the soil. So if you can instead buy a little bit more expensive salt, the potassium-based salts, instead of the sodium-based salts, that's going to have a better effect on the plants. In fact, potassium is one of those macronutrients. It's, it's, it's needed in large amounts, and oftentimes potassium is a little hard to find. So if you use those potassium-based water-softening salts, they're going to be better for the plants than the sodium-based. The other option you have is to uh, put in a couple of hose bibs. And these hose bibs, put one in the front yard, one in the backyard. But these hose bibs should be should come from a, a takeoff that's before the water softener somewhere. There's a main line coming in, a water line coming into the house. And, and usually it's stubbed off of that main line and it goes to an irrigation for your irrigation for your for your plants, your outdoor plants. And if you can tap into that before an irrigation valve and uh, put in a hose bib and run another line to the backyard and put in another hose bib, then you're going to have water without the softening salts uh, with it and you don't have to worry about it. Just don't use the hose bibs that are coming out, out of the house itself because they're attached to that water softener. Those are, those are my solutions to that. And uh, you don't have to just because you have a water softener doesn't mean that you have to have bad looking or hurt your plants. You just have to think about it a little bit. The last question uh, for this week is about, um, basically it's about yellowing plants. Plants that are starting to have yellow leaves. And in this case, it's a lemon bottle brush. So I love my lemon bottle brush shrubs, but the leaves started yellowing. I'm guessing they saw this yellowing developing last summer, uh, started yellowing. I recently added five inches of organic topsoil. Not sure why they did that. Additionally, I think I should add acid. What kind of supplement should I use for a long-term solution? Okay, let's not overthink this, all right? I'm not sure why you brought in organic topsoil and what you did with it. And, you know, by adding acid, that's not a long-term solution for sure. That's a very short-term. The soil is a huge buffer. In other words, you put acid in it, and it's going to try to go right back to where it was, unless you do something different to the soil, unless you really change the soil a lot. <clears throat> so I, I get it. I <clears throat> understand that you've got the lemon bottle brushes. They're starting to yellow. What this oftentimes indicates is that the, the lemon bottle brushes, they brought in some desert landscaping. 
They bought it, brought in the bottle brushes. They probably planted them with an amendment at the time of planting. I don't know if the amendment was much good or not, but they put something in the soil to amend the soil at the time of planting. Then they covered the soil with rock mulch, rock, and now that organic is starting to disappear from the soil as the microorganisms are eating it up. And the soil is getting what we call mineralized. It no longer has much organics left in it. The roots are starting to suffocate now because the soil is collapsing because the organics aren't keeping the particles apart. There's not enough air getting to the roots. The water isn't draining very well because it's, the soil is getting mineralized. So we've got a huge problem that's starting around these lemon bottle brushes, probably because uh, the organics are disappearing. That's my guess. So the long-term solution to this is going to be to try to get those organics back in that soil somehow. And once those organics start to disappear, you know, it's going to be really, really difficult to get the organic back into that soil again. Uh, you could try, try a technique called vertical mulching, which is drilling, pulling those, that rock back. That's number one. Get rid of that rock. Pull it away. Because it's just going to, just, well, there's another solution. <clears throat> you could do some compost teas in there. But anyway, pull the rock back. And then drill auger <clears throat> some holes, vertical holes, up and down, uh, all through the root area around the around the plants, and then backfill those holes, fill those holes with uh, compost. That's called vertical mulching. We're putting organics back in the soil. Put those holes fairly close together, all through that area, and see if you can get those roots to start getting into that composted area, start to grow in there. And then what I would do. Once that rock is pulled away and you've drilled those vertical holes in and you've filled them all up, I'd cover that area with about a half an inch of compost, good compost. And then I would not put the rock back. You could, but I would instead surround those plants with wood chip mulch because I think that's the long-term solution for you is to get rid of the rock mulch on the surface and instead use wood chips because I, I think what's happening is that soil is starting to get mineralized and then suffocating the roots. The roots are having trouble. The, the pH of that soil, the alkaline part of that soil is starting to build up. You've got uh, a lot of alkalinity that's starting to build. The pH is starting to rise. When that happens, iron that's in the soil is there, but it's not available like it used to be. And so we're running in, the plant is taking up iron, but it's not in the correct form. So that's not really adding much. And then we start to see yellowing of the new growth as it's coming out because iron is a fairly immobile uh, nutrient in the plant. It doesn't travel very far. It's taken up and, and where it's, it stays, that's where it stays. Unlike nitrogen, which moves around inside the plant where it's needed, iron doesn't do that. Once it's inside there, it's pretty well locked up. So the new foliage that's coming out, the new leaves, are starting to yellow, getting <clears throat> pale green. The veins are staying a darker green. The leaves are staying, are the between the veins are, are getting a lighter green. That's that intervenal yellowing or chlorosis. 
that that's so common about uh, common with iron iron shortages. So I think that's what's happening with it now. The correction of the plant. The only way you're going to get the yellow leaves on that plant to turn green again is to spray them repeatedly with an iron solution. And that solution should be in distilled water, if possible, because if you put it in tap water, there's a lot of alkalinity in desert water, tap water, you're going to have the same problem. You're going to put iron in a water that's got a lot of alkalinity, higher pH, and that iron is not going to be terribly effective. So use distilled water, or RO, reverse osmosis water, and then <clears throat> you'll, you'll add that whatever whatever chemical or fertilizer you want to put in that water, you'll make yourself up that water, add that fertilizer, iron fertilizer to it, and then then the last thing you're going to do is you're going to put what we call a surfactant. It's, a, it's short for surface active ingredient. A surfactant that will help to help that iron water move inside the leaf. The leaf, it doesn't have roots on it. Uh, the, the way that plants normally take up nutrients is from the soil, through their roots. Well, there's no roots on the leaves. So somehow, we've got to make that water so that it can pass through the surface of the leaf more easily, enter inside the leaf and help turn that green, that yellow foliage greener. So the way we do that is by having that iron compound dissolved in water. I told you, try to use distilled or reverse osmosis water, please. And then when you're done mixing that whole solution up, then add that surface active ingredient, about a tablespoon per gallon. You can use a liquid ivory, excuse me, <laughs> uh, you can use a, uh, a liquid detergent. I used to recommend ivory liquid. That's when it didn't have all the, all the, uh, the, the hand lotions and the perfumes in it. Now it's got all that junk in it. And it isn't as pure as it used to be. Uh, it's still not all that pure. But anyway, what I usually use is I'll, I'll use a Castile-type liquid soap and one that's been used on baby, made for babies because I know they, they keep that pretty safe. I order that online, and with that Castile soap, it runs me, for a quart, runs me maybe about $11. So I'll use a tablespoon per gallon of that. And I put that into the solution after I'm done adding all the water. Otherwise, you get a bunch of bubbles. So add that in there, lightly, gently mix it up, and then you're ready to spray it. So you'll spray the leaves, the upper surface, and the bottom side of the leaf. Why? Because there's a lot more holes in the leaves and it'll get eased in through the leaf surface through the bottom easier than it does the top. But spray both sides, the top and the bottom of the leaves, until the water begins to, looks like it's going to run off the leaf. You want to leave those leaves wet uh, with, the, with the iron solution on them when you, when you go away. And then two or when you when you leave it. Then about two days later, come back and repeat it. Usually within about 24 hours, you'll start to see a color change in the leaf from the iron. And it's a slow change. So that's why you have to come back a couple days later and do it again, 
a couple days later at it again, and keep doing that until you get enough greenery back in the leaves again. That's the only way that you're going to get iron inside the leaves and you're going to turn yellow leaves green again. But if you want to keep the plant, if you want to make the new growth green that's coming out, there's two ingredients that are needed. One, you need nitrogen in the fertilizer that you're using. But number two, you need to apply that iron chelate to the soil before the new growth starts in the early spring you'll add it to the soil so that it's there when the roots are starting to take up their nutrients to take up the water with the nutrients in it and it takes that iron with it the chelate that i would recommend uh, is uh, has the acronym e d d h a that's e david david h a that's the chelate, name of the chelate. It's a big, long, organic name that don't need to know. But it's E-D-D-H-A. You can look in the ingredients on it. If it doesn't say E-D-D-H-A chelate on the front of the package, uh, then look at the ingredients, and you'll see it in the ingredients, uh, E-D-D-H-A. You don't really want to use the chelates that are E-D-T-A or D-T-P-A. You want that one with a big long one uh, with the H in it. That's the only one that has H in it, I think, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, so anyway, use that. And what you'll do with it is follow the label directions, the amount to use. Put it in a small bucket and add water to it. It won't. This chelate is good because it doesn't really care what the kind of water is as long as it's clean. It can be any pH. So you can use tap water with this. I don't recommend tap water with the spray solution, but this one, you can use tap water because it doesn't care. You'll add that iron to the bucket, add water to it, slosh it around, get it all mixed in there, and then pour it close to the plant, about where the roots, you think the roots might be, in a circle around it. And then what's important is because this chelate is sensitive to sunlight, you'll want to cover it with mulch. After you're done, everything's done, you've poured it on, you've got it into the soil, the plant is ready and ready and waiting to take it up with all the other nutrients. Now you're going to cover it to keep the sunlight off of it so it doesn't photo decompose. Okay? You'll do that in the early spring, and that makes sure that when the new growth comes out, it's going to come out dark green along with the nitrogen, instead of yellow a little bit later on in the season. That one application in this early spring, that's all you'll need, is a single application of that EDDHA in the spring, in a bucket, mixed with water, poured it on the soil, and you're done. You're done with it for a whole year. You don't have to worry about it again for a whole year. And then, if you do that, you may not have to spray the leaves again. So uh, that's the added benefit to that. I think I hear some music. But anyway, I think that's my cue to leave. I hope you learned something. I hope that I shared some information that you could use. So anyway, thanks for joining me this week on Desert Horticulture. <laughs>